Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Child about dysfunctional breathing disorders. Stephen is a Canadian trained general physician with a respiratory medicine interest who immigrated to New Zealand in 1991. Initially working in Dargaval, he is now a general physician at Auckland District Health Board. Clinically, he has an interest in asthma and general internal medicine and has a strong passion for medical education. Stephen is the immediate past chair of the NZMA and a current member of the Medical Council. He works privately specialising in internal medicine and respiratory diseases. Welcome, Stephen. Good afternoon, Louise. So we're talking about dysfunctional breathing disorders. I wonder if you could start with a definition to clarify some of the terminology around this condition for our listeners, please. Sure. Well, I I think I'd probably like to begin by just mentioning that we're in a little bit of an evidence-free space in this conversation that we're going to go to. So um, like many areas in medicine, we're still learning uh, and uh, the research and evidence in this area is still early, premature, hypothesis generating more than hard fact for a lot of things that we're talking about. But essentially, What this is, is this is the modern language for something that was used to be known as hyperventilation. You know, remember, we all remember back the old, the brown paper bag syndrome and so on. And what's happened over the last sort of 30 or 40 years is people have got a little bit more scientific about that and realized that actual hyperventilation is just one part of a bigger term for conditions in which it's the problem is with the breathing somehow. It's a disordered breathing pattern causing some symptoms. So how common are dysfunctional breathing disorders, do you think? Or is it a little bit tricky to say not having hard evidence? Well, exactly. It is tricky to say because it's, you know, if we don't have a clear definition, then it's hard to come up with a clear incidence, incidence and so on. But I mean, studies in, in the UK suggest maybe as high as 10%. Um, it's probably even higher in people with asthma. It possibly even is higher in a variety of other conditions. It sort of depends on how you look for it. And it depends how much you diagnose it. In my private practice, I, I see maybe a third, third to half of my patients might be, might be a chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and so I often see disordered breathing, I'd say 20 or 30% of those patients would have some form of disordered breathing, uh, but how much it's contributing to their fatigue, I'm not sure. So in my private practice, I actually see it quite commonly. And in fact, this morning, uh, just at the hospital, I had a colleague say, hey, can I talk to you about this patient we've got with chest pain, can't figure it out. And it became quite clear that it was clearly a disordered breathing. So it, it might be more frequently than we think. And what's the pathophysiology behind this group of disorders? Sure. Well, I, I first heard about this uh, personally when I was, I was working at Green Lane, actually. And um, we had a talk by a, a woman called Dinah Bradley, who's a, who was a physiotherapist at Green Lane. And this would be in about 1994, 1995-ish. And she was giving us a talk uh, about disorder breathing and about hyperventilation syndrome. And I must admit, I sat in the back of that lecture as the cynic that I can be and thought to myself, that's not hyperventilation. I mean, for hyperventilation, don't you have to demonstrate, you know, respiratory alkalosis? You have to, they've blown off their CO2, don't they? I mean, I know what hyperventilation is. I was taught that in medical school kind of thing. And so I was thinking to myself, this isn't what I thought hyperventilation was. But what I've learned over time is instead what they're talking about in this condition, yes, hyperventilation is is one example of disordered breathing, But there's many more symptoms that occur due to an abnormal breathing pattern. 
Um, so forgive me if I may, I'll just explain it the way I explain it to a lot of my patients and the way I sort of heard Dinah explain it once in, in a talk that she was given. In that essentially when we all breathe, we all should diaphragm breathe and the diaphragm descends, creates a negative interthoracic pressure, air comes into our lungs. We relax, diaphragm comes up, air goes out of our lungs. So normally we're all diaphragm breathers. When we go for a run or we're climbing some stairs or we need a little extra breath, we get our chest wall to help us out to get that extra breath in that we need while we're running. When we've stopped running though, the chest wall muscles are supposed to stop, thank you very much, and let the diaphragm take over as the main respiration muscle. There are some conditions in this disordered breathing pattern in which what happens is the chest wall muscles continue to be the primary muscle of respiration. Uh, and they're not designed to be the primary muscle of respiration. And so lots of things happen because of that. First of all, they're not very efficient in their muscle use. So they can consume 30 to 40% of your energy just breathing because now suddenly the work of breathing through your chest walls has gone up more. They activate the fight or flight response because, of course, the brain's getting the signal there's something wrong with breathing and breathing is core to life. So your fight or flight response gets activated. You can get tension headaches because your neck muscles and your chest wall muscles are being used. You can get atypical chest pains. You can get sort of lightheaded and sort of foggy in the head kind of thing because you're not quite getting oxygenated well because you're not getting the lower part of your, or you can get a dry mouth, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a large number of nonspecific symptoms that can occur because you're not diaphragm breathing, you're chest wall breathing all the time. What about anxious patients? They always seem to have a dysfunctional breathing pattern. Sure. And that's where it starts to become chicken or the egg. And this is where I still, I, I opened with the lack of strong evidence in this area. And so I do feel a little bit uncomfortable. But again, my age is kicking in because the older I get, the more I'm starting to get sort of commonsensical about medicine. And so I, I wonder if how much of breath retraining is truly controlling getting the diaphragm to be the primary muscle of respiration versus breath retraining is an example of cognitive behavioral therapy. It is giving the patient something to focus on and something to do. Number two, breath control of breathing clearly controls your fight or flight, your autonomic nervous system. And so breath control will calm down any activation of the autonomic nervous system. So many symptoms of anxiety will get better. I mean, it's the reason why uh, meditation and yoga and Tai Chi and you know, breathing exercises have formed the core of many of the ancient healing arts. Um, because, uh, I, so I'm, I'm sure there is some benefit to anxiety in patients in controlling their breathing. How much their breathing caused their anxiety versus how much anxiety caused their breathing, I'm not really sure, but it doesn't matter to me because I think both are going to improve with breath retraining. Thinking about the clinical features now, you've mentioned a couple, but how do you see these patients presenting? Yeah, I guess, I guess the core features that I look for is a patient um, who says that they are shorter breath at rest, but not shorter breath on their exercising. That's one of the first flags to me. And the common thing that I'll hear a patient say is, you know, I was talking to my friend on the phone the other day and they asked me whether I'd just run to the phone. Or I was reading to my daughter at night and I was sort of gasping for breath while I was reading her a book at night, basically. So shortness of breath at rest, not at exercise, should make you wonder if it's a disordered breathing pattern. Number two, waxing and waning. You know, I can go up those stairs to work sometimes, 
but sometimes um, I take one or two steps or even I'm just sitting at my desk and I'm, I'm gasping for breath. So a waxing and waning symptom can sometimes uh, suggest that this is a disordered breathing pattern. Sighing a lot or yawning a lot or the words are, I just can't get enough breath in, air in. Um, I mean, think about all the patients we see with, with heart failure and pulmonary embolus and anemia and so on. Very rarely have they ever said to me, I just can't get enough breath in. You know, they'll just say, I'm puffed. I'm short of breath. Or I just can't do it anymore. Um, it's slightly different language when it's a disordered breathing pattern. So those questions, those would make quite good screening type questions, wouldn't they? Yes, but, and also conversely, it's important to don't miss it the other way around. If their shortness of breath is only when they are climbing stairs, um, then be, be careful. This is a diagnosis of exclusion. And this is a diagnosis of an evidence-free area a little bit as well. So be cautious to come in early. It's when you can't find anything else, be thinking about this one a little bit too. So when we're at the bedside and we're observing our patients, we're really familiar with counting a respiratory rate and perhaps commenting on work of breathing. But how do we, what are we looking for at the bedside with these patients? Yeah, it's very, very difficult actually on physical examination. I mean, it's quite obvious uh, when, I mean, for example, if I'm taking a consultation sometimes and you'll see the shoulders rising and falling with every breath that they're taking, or you see them stop mid-sentence to get their breath back. Um, when they haven't exerted themselves at all and they haven't even told me about exercise intolerance. Um, so it's really their pattern of breathing, whether it's chest wall or not chest wall, um, but it can be pretty subtle basically. And we don't know that that is all the time. So it's actually very little, if anything, on physical examination. They used to talk about the hyperventilation provocation test. Um, which was ask your patient, stand up, ask your patient to take 12 maximum breaths in and you count one, two, three, four, 12. And if that reproduces their symptoms, aha, you've got hyperventilation syndrome. And that's probably true if you have hyperventilation as your disordered breathing, but we're not talking about that being the primary component here. Here we're talking about you have non-diaphragmatic breathing um, and therefore, the hyperventilation provocation test may not bring on their symptoms. So is there a questionnaire that we should be using or some sort of guide to help us diagnose this? Uh, well, again, I'm sorry to be so confusing and gray to you, but the simple answer is no, not really. I mean, there is a score called the Nimogen score that was developed in the Netherlands. Um, and if you go send um, people to physiotherapists, they'll often use that Nimogen score, which is a score out of 64 based on a variety of questions and so on. But I'd hesitate to recommend to GPs that they use that as a screening tool for patients because as a tool, it was actually designed, I was doing a bit of reading in preparation for this podcast. It was actually developed in 1985 uh, and it was looking for hyperventilation in asthmatics. So it was looking for a specific type of disordered breathing in a certain group of patients. And with that, they quote sensitivity and specificities over 90%. Um, but when we're looking for a disordered breathing pattern using the diaphragm in non-asthmatics, how good is an Imogen score? Um, I think I would struggle to give you a strong answer on that. Similarly, if you were going to look at oxygen saturations, for example, yes, if someone walks into me and they have an oxygen saturation of 100%, um, I may actually start to think that they might be hyperventilating, but it's not necessarily a diagnostic test of a disordered breathing. Um, so 
I'm sorry to be so negative to you, but no, there isn't a good physical examination sign. No, there isn't a good confirmatory test sign. So it's a diagnosis of exclusion, high index of suspicion, and then the commencement of a conversation and a discussion. So Steve, you mentioned a diagnosis of exclusion. So what are we excluding? What are the differential diagnoses? So it it, it depends, obviously, on what their presenting symptom is. But let's say their presenting symptom is something to do with their breathing. So say shortness of breath. Um, I always teach medical students that medicine is too hard to remember everything. Um, So you need to start really basic and dumb. So my approach to shortness of breath is it's either a heart problem, a lung problem, a blood problem, or it's a brain problem, basically. If it's a heart problem, it's either a, a muscle problem, an electrical problem, a valve problem, or a rat problem. If it's a lungs, it's either outside the lungs or inside the lungs, et cetera, et cetera. And so you sort of work through your differential diagnosis of those things. The brain thing, by the way, in that is shortness of breath can be due to aspirin overdose, progesterone excess, midbrain tumors, basically, and hyperventilation are the things that will cause you to be short of breath from the brain point of view. Um, So yeah, it's just generally, the screening test is the really the big one is, is it on exercise only? not at rest. And then if they desaturate on exercise, for example, then you know that it's game over. You've got to look for a real uh, cause here. Medical students and our trainees love red flags. In fact, we all love red flags. Are there any ones that we should be particularly cautious of when thinking of this? Yep. Again, shortness of breath on exercise and syncope, actual syncope. Um, a slight crossover to this diagnosis is pulmonary hypertension. Um, And remember, pulmonary hypertension, when you do some reading about that, is actually, A, more common than we think, and B, often a very delayed diagnosis, um, because it's often patients who are presenting with shortness of breath, normal chest X-ray, with or without some syncope, and we never thought that it could be primary pulmonary hypertension, or it could be um, germane, which is an anorexic agent-induced pulmonary hypertension or something. And so pulmonary hypertension is, is a subtle diagnosis that can present, but again, it's almost always shortness of breath on exercise. Um, and so that would be my one reg flag. Don't ever diagnose disordered breathing if it's shortness of breath on exercise, not at rest. Perfect. Makes sense. So thinking about management now of this condition, what can we do for our patients? The best exercise is the breath retraining, basically. And um, again, Dinah Bradley has, uh, has published books on this now into the third edition or something. And there's some exercises in the back of the book. Most physios now uh, will teach breath retraining uh, courses as well. But it's a very simplistic uh, approach. My understanding of it is very simplistic anyway, of what that breath retraining is. But we basically, we just tell our patients five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, lie on your back, put a one kilogram weight on your stomach, like a bag of rice or something, put one hand on your chest, and then spend five minutes breathing so that the bag of rice is, is going up every time you breathe in and your chest isn't moving. Okay. So it's just five minutes of rice is going up and down, five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night. And like all muscles in physio training, it takes about six weeks for the diaphragm to get it and go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to be doing the breathing all the time. And then in about six to eight weeks is usually when you start to get the changeover. And do most people get a good result if they're taught properly and adherent? We've talked about adherence a lot uh, in our asthma podcast, but how 
what what can our patients expect from from the breath three training? In my experience, yes. Uh, I mean, in, in lots of ways. I mean, I say in my experience, it's interesting because when I uh, started in private practice, I took over from a senior colleague, Dr. John Henley. Um, and so a lot of the patients that I saw were John's and John uh, used to refer patients to Dinah Bradley for hyperventilation syndrome when I was hearing about it in the early days. And I was a bit of a skeptic uh, when I first got involved. And But I, I listened to John and I, I did the reading and I started sending patients along and I sort of kept track of the first 29 patients that I sent along to the breathing clinic and for the breath retraining, 26 out of those 29 um, that when I saw them in, in follow-up were considerably better uh, and some almost miraculously so. Now, again, to this day, I don't know how much it was in that they were given a diagnosis so that they felt there was some, some list, they felt heard, they felt listened. They had uh, time in the clinic and they had breath retraining. They were given a course of treatment that they could have some sense of control over their improvement in their training versus how much was this breath retraining that made the difference. I'm not sure, but I have found personally that there's been a, a, a very high level of success from patients that have gone through and done this. On, on a subtle personal level, basically, many, many years ago, I went swimming at the World Masters Games when it was held here in New Zealand. Um, and I used to get, I still do, I get uh, stupidly anxious before races, which for absolutely no other reason, I'm only racing myself, but for some reason, my anxiety kicks in unbelievably. And uh, for those World Masters Games, I, for the first time, I started doing breathing exercises in the weeks beforehand, and I would sit in the marshalling area before a race doing my breathing exercises. Well, I did five races at those uh, games, and I did five races and five personal best times. And I have no doubt it's because I got control of my breathing before I hopped in the pool. Um, so that's on a personal level. I think breathing is, is, is a com core component of all of our anxiety levels and a lot of the health issues that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tend to agree with you there. The other thing I wondered if you could comment on for us, our listeners is, now and I have difficulty pronouncing it, but the Boutico technique of breathing. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I'm not that expert on it. Um, I do know that it was a, a rapid, fast um, breathing technique. Um, and which you get a control of the breathing. It was first used in asthma, um, and it was found to be fairly effective in asthma. I know that the later uh, meta-analyses done in asthma found that it wasn't as effective in asthma as asthma treatment, basically. Um, so I personally haven't recommended or read on it or used it in at least 20 years, basically. But I'm willing to, to re-examine and re-look at the literature itself. But my first thought would be, I'm not sure that it's going to be any special breathing technique, if you know what I mean. The other one that's out there at the moment, I think, is the, the Hoff method or something. And these people are doing these long breath holds and so on. Um, and then there's, uh, I have an app on my phone about breath cycles of breathing that you do and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not sure the formula is going to lie in any one individual figured out how, what the formula needs to be. I think just as long as we're breathing the correct manner with diaphragm breathing, I'm not sure the right rhythm technique is as important personally. Great. Thank you for clarifying on that. So we've talked a little bit about prognosis after an accurate diagnosis and compliance, and it seems excellent. So it's something that we should probably be referring more often than not to a trained physiotherapist is what I'm hearing. Yeah, very much so. And I think in part of it, when I'm explaining it to the patients as well, you know, they often say, well, but why did it happen? Um, and I, to me, I think the most likely reason it happens is because 
either a psychological stress or a physical stress that has then increased their resistance to breathing. Let's say they've picked up a bit of a cold or a little bit of a, pan, a bronchiolitis kind of thing. Their breathing has increased slightly. So they've recruited the chest wall muscles. The cold has gone away and they've been left um, with these same symptoms. Um, psychological trauma can do it as well. I once had a patient whose um, husband had been at the beach and he'd been quickly trying to wind the boat onto the trailer before the waves were coming in and so on. And oops, he cut his thumb off. His thumb literally fell into the sand, basically. And so a big Westpac helicopter flowing in, emergency surgery, et cetera. And about three or four months after this incident, she started to have some quite severe fatigue, basically. Um, and she went along to the breathing exercises and had a, a near miraculous recovery from the whole thing. And so there, to me, was probably a stress-induced alteration of breathing pattern, or for whatever reason, it calmed the autonomic nervous system by doing the breath retraining again. Interesting. Well, thank you for your time today. I just wonder if you could conclude our podcast with a few take-home messages for our listeners. Yes. So I guess um, take-home message number one is consider a disordered breathing pattern when a patient presents with any breathing signs that occur at rest, not at exercise, and that will wax and wane. Remember that it's a relatively evidence-free area, so it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Be very wary of being dogmatic about it as the primary diagnosis until you've considered the other uh, diagnoses. And always keep an open mind when we're dealing in evidence-free areas. But three, simple breath retraining, supportive care, and control of the breathing may make dramatic improvements to your patients. Perfect. Thank you for your time today, Stephen. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for this podcast, just log it on your dashboard. You no longer require a fraction of learning form. You'll find the list of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for joining us today.